Welcome back to Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in Denver, Colorado. And we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. It's time to go Behind the Wings. Episode 15, hard to believe we're this far down the road. We're so glad to have you along for the ride. If you're listening in a podcast app, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the episode, give us a rating. It really does help us a lot and we appreciate it very much. Now, we're excited to bring you a barrier-breaking episode today. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Rick Crandall. With me as always is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. All right, my friend, what do we have for folks today? Well, Rick, uh, we are going to get ready to float around some topics <laughs> because we're talking about zero gravity and low gravity parabolic flights. Specifically, we'll be discussing Mission Astro Access, a project dedicated to promoting disability inclusion in space exploration by paving the way for disabled astronauts in science, technology, engineering, and math. You know, they have recently completed their second mission where they launched disabled scientists, veterans, students, athletes, and artists on parabolic flights. Now, the crew, or ambassadors as they're called, conduct experiments in weightlessness, lunar gravity, Martian gravity, and zero gravity. They can adjust the parabolic pushover of the airplane to give different microgravity sensations and understand how the physical environment could be modified. Yeah, this research is going to help to ensure that all astronauts and space explorers, regardless of any disabilities they may have on Earth or disabilities that could arise while in space, can successfully participate in space exploration. Our guests today are Mission Astro Access Ambassadors Lindsay Yazzolino and Eric Ingram. Eric is the founder and CEO of Scout Inc., a smart satellite components company. Eric is a wheelchair user and flew on Mission Astro Access 1 and again on their second flight in November of 2022. Lindsay Yazzolino is a totally blind, non-visual designer with backgrounds in cognitive neuroscience research and public transit accessibility. Lindsay currently works as a user experience designer at CVS Health and is also a tactile technology specialist collaborating with scientists, museums, and product developers to create multi-sensory hands-on experiences. Lindsay flew on Astro Access 2. I know we've got a ton of questions and a lot to learn on this one. It's going to be cool. So to get this thing kicked off, Eric and Lindsay, I'd love it if you could introduce yourselves and basically specifically your connection to Mission Astro Access and what got you excited about the project. Lindsay, let's start with you. Awesome. All right. So my background, actually, I've worked in science-related work for quite a while. I started off working in cognitive neuroscience research. From there, I've been doing a lot of work with science accessibility, um, other types of citizen science work, and I've always just had a very strong passion for science and all things related to science. So one year, a few years ago, uh, it was back in 2019, and I got invited to speak at a science accessibility conference called Sci Access. 
and it was all about making science accessible for, for people with different disabilities. And from there, um, some of the organizers were involved um, with organizing uh, Astro Access as well. So that's how I found out about Astro Access. I actually applied a year ago for the, the first flight, and it was, of course, super competitive, and I didn't get in that year. But then this year, I applied again and got in. So that's that's how I got started. Well, it's great to know. Oh, I'm sorry. Go I ahead. kind of forgot a crucial piece of information, which is that I'm totally blind, and I have been since birth. Um, so that's kind of how I got involved with all this work related to science accessibility and why this Ask Your Access program has been super important to me, what they're doing, what we're doing. Okay, Eric, over to you. Yeah, hey. Um, so I've been in the space industry my entire career. I'm a space nerd. I've done a lot of different things in the space industry, everything from engineering to regulatory work. And I currently wear a lot of hats, including being the founder and CEO of a space startup called Scout that is developing some optical technology for satellites. Um, and I myself have a physical disability. I use a wheelchair. And through my network, I was reached out to about Astro Access a month or two after the organization had formed. And I was fortunate enough to be selected for both the, uh, the first and second um, Astro Access flights. Well, the two of you are amazing people. That, uh, that's what's exciting about this segment that we're doing today. Well, NASA's Twitter bio is just one sentence. It says, there's space for everybody. Now, this is a great sentiment, and but it's certainly something the space industry is still working towards. I think we're moving in the right direction with increased accessibility to space. It's more of an aspiration for the future than a reality of today. So before we get into the details of Astro Access, let's zoom out a bit to, to help our audience understand a little bit about the big picture of what's happening with human space flight more broadly. Now, NASA is sending astronauts back to the moon, as we know, with the Artemis mission. Uh, more commercial astronauts uh, were launched last year than ever before. We have commercial space stations that are set to come online in the next decade. So give us some insights of what is happening here. How, how are astronauts changing today? And what is critical about the NASA statement, there's space for everybody? Eric, we'll start with you. There is a lot of activity and we're seeing every day we getting further and further from what used to be the right stuff you need to be an astronaut. We're well past the days of needing to be a fighter pilot to um, go to space. And there's a lot more activity in space beyond just NASA and government entities launching people. We saw the Inspiration4 mission that went up last year as a privately funded orbital a space flight that went to a higher altitude than the International Space Station. We have uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin doing commercial suborbital flights. And as you mentioned, there are, there are many entities working on commercial space stations and the like. Activity is increasing, and it's a matter of time before spaceflight is a regular part of human civilization. And we're starting to see that trend unfold. And as we go forward, being able to ensure that everybody has access to spaceflight whenever that opportunity presents itself is going to be vital. Um, and so it's it's less of an aspiration and more of a necessity as we're going forward. Yeah, so I agree with a lot of what Eric said. I, I think personally, I've found that you're know, growing up, I always felt like space travel, I, 
I, as a little kid, actually, it was funny. As a, as a kid, one of my teachers remembers me saying that I wanted to be an astronaut, as I'm sure a lot of kids did. And I always, yeah, I don't actually remember saying that, but I do remember always feeling like the idea of going to space felt kind of like something that others did. It didn't feel like really something that I was going to do. Um, it didn't feel like a thing that most people would be able to do. And now with more commercial space flight being a thing, um, coming into existence, it just the feeling has, has changed so much where it's like, well, wait a minute, one day maybe I can go into space. You know, my, some of my friends might go into space. My colleagues might be going into space. And the logical sort of thought process for me was like, well, of course that should be accessible. Of course everybody should be able to, to do it. And the people shouldn't be prevented from going literally just because space flight vessels are not designed to be accessible. The ethos, I guess, has changed. The feeling has changed a lot where I, I think that, you know, it's it's just makes so much sense to be thinking about how to incorporate accessibility going forward. Great answers both. And let, let's uh, get a little bit deeper into Astro Access itself. If you could, again, Eric, we'll start with you. Tell us a bit more about getting ready for the mission. You know, what you're thinking, feeling, maybe what the goals are of this whole thing. I just, the excitement of the anticipation of it all is is as much part of the preparation as anything else, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and I'll, I'll start a little high level first and kind of talk about the mission of Astro Access in general, which is to make spaceflight accessible to everyone. So it's not um, necessarily about getting everyone who has a disability onto spaceflight, but more so making sure that when you have the opportunity to go, you're able to go and there's no barriers in your way, either literally or uh, systematically or anything like that. And the things we're doing in Astro Access is testing solutions to make those with disabilities equally as able to participate in microgravity as someone else and be productive in microgravity. And so we're doing uh, parabolic flights on the zero-G corporation aircraft. So we're doing parabolas that simulate microgravity in 20 to 25 second chunks. And we're testing solutions for people with mobility impairments, people with vision impairments, and people with hearing impairments to improve quality of life uh, for them, but also for everyone who uh, will be participating in spaceflight. For the flight itself, it's been really exciting to see all of the press we got from the first flight in uh, 2021 and the advancement in the uh, sophistication of the research we've done on the second flight has been amazing. On the first flight, like we were just, I, I mean, efficiency was not peak, uh, I, I will say. And it, uh, it was a really big eye opener for, you know, what we could get done and some of the stuff we could do in microgravity. But when we came to the second flight, we ticked a lot of boxes with the experiments we've done. We got a lot of great information and we're laying down some really good foundations for a lot of interesting things we can build up from. And so it was super exciting in the build up. I was pumped and so busy for the setup, it kind of just showed up one day and it was like, oh, I have to fly to Houston now, I guess. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, things go by in a, in a blink, but it was 
an awesome experience to be a part of. All right. So here you are, Lindsay. <laughs> so how are you preparing? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because as Eric is talking about this, I'm I'm remembering all the, the sort of buildup and all the stuff that we did. We've been planning stuff ahead of time. Honestly, I think because there was so much sort of science prep to do before we flew, it was sort of what occupied my mind for a while. For instance, one of the experiments I was doing, we had to we had to do some work. We had to meet up with other collaborators and design these tactile decals that we were putting on the aircraft and the inside of the aircraft to help blind people to nap to orient themselves non-visually when you have no gravity. So we were like planning and designing these graphics and getting all the stuff ready and I was getting some audio stuff set up so I could record what I was doing during the flight. It was a lot of what I would call you know, the not so glamorous side of it, which but also the really important process of uh -huh. actually prepping for the experiment. So you know, we were getting ready for a mission. So it was you know, we had a couple of rooms that were just full of stuff that we were, you know, getting ready to put on the plane and it was it was definitely everybody was was very much in work mode. And I would say for me it wasn't until maybe the day, the day of the flight, maybe the night before when I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I'm, I am, I am now, this is happening. Like this is really happening and I'm going to be in weightlessness and it's going to be super cool and I'm super excited. Um, and that's when I got to get really excited about the, the flight. You know, so this uh, mission takes place on a zero G parabolic flight. Now I had an opportunity to do this in 1985 and uh, to give the audience an appreciation for this, and you can expand on this as you go forward, you know, you're in an airplane that has very few seats, just for enough for the passengers that are in there. The rest of it is all padded, you know, so you can float around and do this zero-gravity uh, experiment or microgravity experiment. And they've got guardrails off of the lights, you know, so you don't burn yourself if you bump into <laughs> it. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're experiencing microgravity and you know, the lunar gravity is different, the Martian gravity is different, and zero G is different when you're out in space. So what were the things you were each testing during the flight? Okay. So, uh, Lindsay, why don't you start yeah, with that? okay. Um, so I was part of what we called the blind crew. So we had a few different groups of us doing working on different experiments, um, which were mostly sort of dependent on the disability that we had, but not always. There were some experiments that were done by a group of people with uh, different disabilities. But um, the main experiment I was involved in was to design these tactile decals that were intended to help people who are blind or just can benefit from non-visual information to help orient to the plane. So or in, uh, in this case, it's a plane, but inevitably the idea is to help people to orient to if they're in, in space, in a spacecraft or space station. So the first piece of information you want to have when you're blind and you're floating in zero gravity is which way is down. Cause obviously if gra when gravity comes back, you want to kind of know which way you're going to be heading. And also if you're in space, it's, it's a way to just get, a, get your bearings and to get a sense of uh, where you are. So we had this tactile, it was essentially a, a tactile letter V and it points down. So if you're if you hit the wall and you feel a V and it's pointing downward, you know, if it's in its normal V-like orientation, you know that, okay, I'm, my feet are facing the floor. Uh, if you hit the V and it's sideways, you know that, okay, if I want to be pointed, if I want to point my feet at the floor, I need to you know, turn 90 degrees and then my feet will be pointed at the floor. So we had 
that and then also different symbols to show different oxygen masks, emergency exits, locations of different emergency equipment. So those were the things we were testing and we wanted to see how helpful they would be and how quickly people could actually decipher them while in this environment, while in a zero gravity environment. So that was the experiment we had. We had everybody who was participating check out a few different uh, versions of these decals and indicate what they believed they showed. And we'll be analyzing that data soon. So that's been very exciting and also a lot of work. <laughs> wow. Well, so Eric, on your experience, so here we have the airplane climbing at a very steep angle and pushing over. Now you're experiencing that. So what's, what's your feeling and what were you testing for your situation? So some of the things we're testing were, were new applications like Lindsay and other groups are working on. But some of the things we're doing is to buy down risk for human spaceflight. So one of the concerns that exists out there is the ability for people with physical disabilities and people with vision impairments to get back in their seats during suborbital flight before the gravity comes back, because that is the most important thing you have to do safety-wise to make that happen. And that question was just outstanding. It's a very simple question that has no data surrounding it. And what we did is we got that data. And so we had three uh, analogous chairs. So three chairs that were similar to spaceflight seats. Uh, one that was similar to one that's on the Blue Origin New Shepard. And then two that are similar to the Virgin Galactic space plane. And what we were doing with, during our parabolas with those chairs is getting into the seats, putting on the harnesses, and, you know, securing ourselves as much as we could within those 20 to 25 second windows. So each seat had five point harnesses. We had several people performing the experiment. I was on the Blue Origin analogous chair for the entirety of my flight. And so it was a great experience. It was really cool to do something, I mean, foundational. And sure. uh, I, I worked uh, muscle groups that you don't normally work in normal gravity. So, you know, the repetitious motion of pulling your core in and rotating around and getting in a seat, stuff you don't necessarily have to do on Earth too much. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the first zero-G parabola I did on the first flight. And to suddenly have your clothes be weightless, to suddenly not be touching any surface is something that still kind of baffles me. Just the concept of touching nothing is, is something that you can't do in a gravity well. So, you know, people ask, what's it like in microgravity? It's, it's alien. It really is. And it's, it's difficult to express because you're don't have the buoyancy of water holding you up. You don't have uh, air rushing by your face as if you were uh, jumping out of a plane. It's a great experience. And hopefully everyone gets the chance to experience uh, microgravity at some point in their life. Was there anything that surprised you or was unique about zero gravity? You know, uh, what was the <laughs> something that was just like a, well, okay, I wasn't expecting that, you know, got you moments up there or surprises while you were there. Lindsay? Okay, okay, yeah. So I, I love talking about this because this is just honestly the coolest part. So for me, always having been totally blind, I was just super curious to know what it would feel like. I think a lot of us are, but I think also just being blind you don't really get to hear a lot from other blind people about what it's like to experience being in zero gravity just because it not a lot of us have gotten the chance to do it. And then also sure. of those people, only a handful of blind people have gotten the chance to do it. So 
one thing one thing for for my experience is like I've always liked certain kinds of motion. So I've always loved to spin. Like I can sit in a swivel chair and like spin super fast for like a long time. And I like amusement park rides. I just spin and spin and spin. And like I've never experienced motion sickness in my life. So I was really curious to know what it would be like to actually experience zero gravity. So I think for me, the first moment that we, in this case, it was uh, Martian gravity. So we had some gravity, but it was still microgravity. So the first thing I remember is just the floor leaving me. And for a split second, I'm like, holy crap, there's no floor. Like, <laughs> life teaches you that usually if the floor goes away, you're going to fall and it's not going to feel good. And you're just it's going to be graceless and it's just not going to be great. But obviously it's zero gravity and that's not how it works. So once I just got to trust the process, I was like, okay, so now I just get to like have fun and I get to just spin and flip and do whatever I want. But I think one of the interesting things for me was how inevitably I felt like rather than me moving around the plane, it was almost as if the plane was moving around me. Because wherever I landed, I felt like that was the floor. So if I hit a wall, it was like that was the floor. If the sea, if I if I landed on the ceiling, that became the floor. So wherever I landed, that kind of became my down. And so I could just crawl around or spin and, you know, launch off and land somewhere. And that always felt like the floor. So I think for me, once I kind of changed my frame of reference and thought of it as I'm kind of the... <laughs> I'm kind of the center of this little, my own little universe here. And as I'm moving, it really feels like this is all moving around me. And I really want to go again to kind of test that and see if experiencing that a second time, if if that holds up. Because that, that was definitely sort of my, my takeaway for how it feels and I didn't feel any motion sickness as I as I expected and it's obviously a different gravitational experience so yeah that I think that was the biggest the, the most interesting thing was just being in a position where I was in this environment that felt like it was moving yeah. around me. Now you both provide some uh, unique insights but it's interesting to consider the unique challenges and experiments on astro access in the framework of not disability but of different abilities. Wouldn't it be unique to make sense if a shuttle could be navigated by a blind person? So if the lights went out and everything went black, everyone could get around. Or what about someone who is deaf, you know, making sign language a requirement to, to be in a conversation if radio communication went down? And then again, how does that interface with floating upside down and how you go? And are there any insights that you both have had on the role that spacecraft design plays in accessibility. Yeah, and uh, I, I'll take that first. Everything we do with Astro Access, all the solutions we come up with, can be ubiquitous in its use for humanity. If lights go out, like you mentioned, you're gonna need a way to navigate. If there are computers and machines running or there's engines running and you can't hear, you're gonna need ways to communicate. And if you get injured or you ever get old in space, you're going to need ways to adapt to that, that new physical reality. And so everything we're doing is applicable to everyone and can benefit everyone. So um, I, I want to dispel any notion that this is a, a niche set of solutions. 
just like on Earth, I don't think I've heard anyone complain about automatic doors opening at CVS. And so um, <laughs> similar similar kind of things here. And the things we're trying to solve for, um, we're trying to use the most simplistic designs possible, not overly complicate things, make them as utilitarian and usable by as wide a swath of the population as possible. And we're in conversation with almost every human spaceflight company that's developing uh, spacecraft, space stations, training regimens, all of that stuff. We're in conversations with almost all of them and providing them the direct results with what we're doing in Astro Access. And some of them had representatives on our flights. So the conversation is well underway and it's well understood by a lot of, um, of these companies. And, you know, Astro Access is leading the charge in, in providing the real answers that are needed to make spaceflight accessible to everyone. This is all so <laughs> cool. This is really, really cool. All right. So this big old world of ours is uh, full of diverse people and maybe there's a bit of the future of space in that, right? I, I can, of course, imagine with more and more people going into space, there's going to be people with a wide variety of disabilities going to space on rockets, living in space stations. Uh, but also, the fact is, space really wants to just hurt you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a hostile environment. So when people spend more time in space, there will inevitably be disabilities that people develop while living or working in space. So um, with this great conversation we've had so far, and Eric, you were kind of alluding to that a little bit in your, in your last answer. You know, what, what is, what's your dream for the future of space exploration? All right. My dream for the future of space exploration is normalcy. I want space flight to be a boring part of the human existence. And I want the fact that people with disabilities are in space, working and living in space is a trivial fact. I think that's when we know that we've been successful. Right. And um, as as much of a non-answer as that is, I think that's that's really what I'm driving towards the day that this isn't a news story. Yeah. And the day that it's it's commonplace. Um, yeah. But that, that'll be an exciting time. Yeah, I, I'm definitely in agreement with that. Um, I want it to just be normal. I want it to be common as someone who loves to be on airplanes. I love the idea of just like, oh, yeah, you know, get on a space plane and go to space. And to just be part of that experience, I want to just be natural where, where we can have different kinds of roles in that process. Yeah. So not just as like, oh, you know, let's find this this one thing that blind people can do. Or like, let's find the thing that deaf people or people who use wheelchairs do, um, but be able to have designed this, the accessibility of space flight so well that people can just do what they're naturally good at and yep. naturally be able to contribute their skill set to space flight, to space travel um, in a way that just makes sense. Yeah, I would dream about that time when the reason Lindsay's in space is not because she can't see, it's because, man, she's really smart about how to grow tomatoes in <laughs> zero gravity. Or you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's the reason you're there. <laughs> I now I totally have the image of of me jumping on a plane and going to space with and and going to with your tomato yeah. with your tomato <laughs> <laughs> you know but it's you true. both uh, 
<laughs> you both answered that question very well. In fact, we had Steve Lindsay, who was an astronaut. You know, when we asked him that question, one of his answers was he wants to go into a classroom, talk to a bunch of kids and say, I'm an astronaut. You know, I've been to space. And the kids stand up and they say, so what? My parents have been 10,000 times, don't <laughs> Exactly. Uh, well, you guys have been amazing. The insights and, and yeah. help in trying to understand uh, some of the complexities, but also some of the solutions that, you know, you're going to be able to bring to the conversation. Yeah. And uh, I, I know it's going to benefit us all uh, for what you've been able to provide. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So Rick, over to you. Thank you, Lindsay Azzolino, Eric Ingram, for joining us. Golly, that was really, really cool. You know, John, what I really loved about today was getting the perspective of somebody with disabilities you know the uh, the emotions of it all, but but just the uh, the sensory awareness, especially from Lindsay, who's blind, of which way is up and which way is down, and and just I'm fascinated how enthusiastic they were, how excited they were to be able to participate oh. when you're not limited by gravity. What about you? Yeah, I was taken up by the fact that uh, what their participation is going to allow us to do is benefit all astronauts whether you have disabilities or not. Because we have to prepare for all sorts of contingencies. You know, if somebody gets injured, if somebody, you know, if we lose electricity of some sort and you gotta work in a blind, dark environment, you know, where you can't see your hand in front of your face, or, you know, you're not able to get around, you know, physically either, not just zero gravity, but microgravity, because the moon is one-sixth gravity that we have here on the planet. So uh -huh. their insights and valued contributions are going to benefit not just people with disabilities, but all astronauts in all of the different kinds of environments that we can probably experience in outer space. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I, it had never occurred to me to think about what if something like that happened to you know, an able-bodied uh, astronaut all of a sudden can't walk. How do you adapt to that? And that's what we're learning from Folks like Eric and, and Lindsay, and boy, how special. Wow, great episode. Well, that's going to do it, folks, for episode 15 of the Behind the Wings podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation. You can also access the show notes there, which is really pretty cool. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot. We do appreciate it. And you know what? We'll see you next time right here on Behind the Wings.